Welcome to 4 for 4's Most Accurate Podcast, presented by Draft. I'm your host, Greg Smith. The guest on today's show is the great Evan Silva, and after he gives us some info on the big moves he's been working toward this offseason, we're going to dive deep into the Dallas Cowboys depth chart, discuss how positional value and positional predictability inform our draft strategies, then go deep on mid-round running backs and wide receivers we can target, depending upon those early-round draft strategies we employ. But before I bring Evan on, I have a few housekeeping notes. The music on today's podcast is the opening track from the Beastie Boys 1992 album, Check Your Head. It's called Jimmy James. Check out the full song on the TMAP B-Sides playlist via the link in the show notes, along with all the other music I've used on my episodes. Also, if you listen to my emergency episode on 444's Fantasy First podcast feed, you know that I had a spot to give away into this year's Scott Fishbowl, and I'm happy to announce that Tony Reimer is the winner. Tony, keep an eye on your inbox for that SFB invite from Scott, and good luck in the event. Last but not least, I want to remind you that this episode is brought to you by Draft. If you're not already playing in their best ball contests, head over to playdraft.com or search up Draft in the App Store and sign up using our code 444, spelled just like our web address, the number 4, F-O-R, then the number 4, and get a free $3 voucher with your first deposit. And now I'd like to welcome in Evan Silva of EstablishTheRun.com, at Evan Silva on Twitter, Welcome to the show, man. How you doing? Doing great, man. Thanks so much for having me on. We've done this with like three or four years in a row, and uh, we had some scheduling blips early on. It's completely my fault, but I'm very glad that we're finally going to execute on this. Oh, man. All water under the bridge. I'm super stoked <laughs> to have you. We're going to dive deep on all sorts of stuff, but before we get into all that, give me like the quick 15-second rundown about this new endeavor of yours. Like, Who else is involved, and when can people start to get excited about seeing new content at Establish the Run? Yeah, so Adam Levitan and I um, worked at Roto World for five to six years together. Uh, we, be- we became great friends over the years. You know, he went and did his own thing. I mean, he left Roto World. He went and, wor- and worked for DraftKings and Fantasy Labs, et cetera. He had a bunch of different gigs, and he did really well on his own. And, um, you know, now we're, we're trying to re- rejoin forces, and, and we brought along with us um, Taylor Kaby, who was uh, big in, in the poker game um, not too long ago. Andrew Wiggins, who's a big time high stakes nosebleed uh, fantasy or a DFS player, and we brought along uh, Josh Hermsmeyer's Air Yards by Low, and we brought along Pat Thorman, who's on the cutting edge of uh, making predictions about how many plays per game teams are going to run and how that can uh, affect positively or negatively players' fantasy football out- outputs. We did a soft launch on July 1st. And by July 15th or around the middle of July, uh, we anticipate having a ton of content on the site. I already have a ton of content just logged onto my computer right now, just ready to go. And uh, we're really looking forward to that. Yeah, good deal, man. I can't wait to see what you guys are doing because, like you said, that roster you've assembled is pretty amazing. And Thanks. I mean, I think it's it's kind of fitting that we're talking about this new independent venture of yours during Fourth of July week. And this is going to be an admittedly cheesy segue, but. Which player do you think is going to celebrate some newfound fantasy football independence this season? Like, who's going to kind of step into a new light uh, based upon changes in the offseason? Well, from a personal standpoint, and just because I really like the player and I have him on a bunch of dynasty teams, I would love for it to be Duke Johnson in a trade to, to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But I think that at this point, the Browns have to keep Duke Johnson as insurance with Kareem Hunt ineligible until week 10, and he recently got into another kind of some some kind of run-in with police. Uh, but I'm going to stick with the Browns and say Odell Beckham. Baker Mayfield averaged 7.7 yards per pass attempt as a rookie. That's better than Eli Manning's average in every season 
since 2011. Uh, PFF charted a league low 50% of Odell's targets last year as on target. Uh, and Baker Mayfield threw the fourth highest rate of on target passes in the NFL from week nine on after uh, Freddie Kitchens took over the offense from Todd Haley and Hugh Jackson. So Odell Beckham is going to get the best quarterback play of his career this year. And I think he's really capable of leading all wide receivers in fantasy points. I right now have him as the number three overall season long receiver. Um, behind Devontae Adams and DeAndre Hopkins. But every day I think about moving him up to number two. I kind of have Devontae Adams locked in, um, but I think I might move Odell Beckham up to number two ahead of DeAndre Hopkins. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And I think a lot of the reason why we're hesitant to move OBJ that high is because of that shift in team, right? We see receivers change teams often and struggle in those first however many weeks or months to adapt to a new system, to a new quarterback and make that work for themselves. But I mean, we're talking about one of the best receivers in the league. Like the talent is definitely there. Like you said, Baker is the best quarterback he's ever played with. I, I think that we can kind of forego those sorts of concerns in this case. Do you agree with that? Largely. I mean, it's definitely, I'm glad that you brought it up because it, it's absolutely a concern. I mean, you go back and look at the receivers that changed teams last year. that were the highest priced receivers that teams paid a lot of money for. Sammy Watkins, disappointment. You know, Allen Robinson, Pretty much a disappointment. Jarvis Landry had one of the, the weakest fantasy seasons of his career. Paul Richardson, he was a complete dud in Washington. I mean, those were the wide receivers that got a lot of money in free agency and moved on to new teams, and they were all duds across the board. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. It is that is a reason to continue to keep him behind to continue to keep Odell Beckham behind DeAndre Hopkins. Yeah, for sure. Now, kind of on the flip side of this uh, Independence Day uh, conundrum I'm, I'm putting to you, which player do you think might continue to be unfairly oppressed under you know the fantasy football equivalent of colonial rule? Like, who is still you know trapped by his situation? Well, I think it's Duke Johnson. You know, but as, as I full mentioned, circle, <laughs> right? Full circle. Um, but as for a guy that checks that box, that that kind of red flag box of being a, a wide receiver who's moving on and a player who is really downgrading his situation. It's Antonio Brown going to the Raiders. He's 31 years old now. His yards per route run and his yards per target last year in Pittsburgh were his lowest since 2012. He got carried by catching 15 touchdowns, which was the most in the league in the most of his career. So, I mean, touchdown regression could smack him in the mouth. I mean, you chop those 15 touchdowns into like seven and a half, and, I mean, that's a huge loss in terms of just his pure fantasy output. Then you have the you know that concerning history of the wide receivers changing teams, um, and Derek Carr has never been an aggressive downfield thrower, and vertical ability is a huge part of Antonio Brown's game. Derek Carr last four seasons in percentage of twenty plus yard attempts, thirty second, fifteenth, sixteenth, and twentieth. Ben Roethlisberger was tenth, first, fourth, and fourth. And and if you look at John Gruden's history, he really has not been a coach who. You know, he coaches a, a big-time vertical passing attack. I mean, he comes from those West Coast Bill Walsh roots, and I'm just not sure this is going to be a seamless fit with A.B. In, in, in Oakland, and I think it could get rocky if he's not getting the ball downfield. Yeah, and I think all those concerns you have about Derek Carr and his ability to push the ball downfield also need to translate over to Tyrell Williams, another guy who is changing teams to come play with Derek Carr. Like, he's another guy who we have to be skeptical of, right? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, he was a guy that really only produced. I've always liked him. You know, I've always really liked him as, Me too. as a big run after catch receiver. And it seems like coaches have 
tried to shoehorn in, him into a vertical role. Um, but I think he's always been best at his best as a run after catch receiver. And the only times that he was productive were like when every like everyone dropped out of the the Chargers offense. Other than that, he was pretty much a disappointment. You know, he really couldn't break out of rotations with um, Travis Benjamin and you know Mike Williams. Keenan all Keenan Allen was always the guy there. And Tyrell Williams really, in order to produce fantasy caliber uh, seasons and weeks, he needed a bunch of other guys to go down. And, um, yeah, he's not a guy that I'm targeting even really, really late in drafts. Good stuff. Now I want to circle back to something that you mentioned how we've, we've done these podcasts year after year. And last year on the show over at 2QBs, uh, I asked you the same sort of question, uh, and you pegged the Bears offense as one to pay attention to in your answer. And then, of course, Mitchell Trubisky went out, finishes the QB 10 in points per game with a bunch of huge spike weeks. So I, I'm really looking forward to see what direction you go with it this year. But uh, you're editing Warren Sharp's 2019 football preview like you did in 2018. So mm-hmm. g- give me an insight from your experience doing that. What have you pulled from Warren's analysis that has really stood out to you? Well, we agree about two teams that are kind of contrarian um, and from an offensive standpoint um, that we think that these offenses are being undervalued. The first one is uh, the Cardinals. And, you know, people talk about how their offensive line is still bad, and I get it, but they've taken more steps to alleviate those issues than I think people think. First of all, the mobility of Kyler Murray is going to come in stark contrast to Sam Bradford and Josh Rosen, guys who were just little statues. And the Cardinals hired Sean Kugler as their offensive line coach. Sean Kugler last year was the Broncos offensive line coach. And the Broncos finished number six in Football Outsiders run blocking metric. You know, Philip Lindsay had that great year. Royce Freeman got banged up and was disappointing in fantasy, but he was still very successful, like in terms of a success rate from a success rate standpoint. Uh, the Cardinals traded for Marcus Gilbert, who when he's been healthy, he's been a stud right tackle. They added J.R. Sweezy at guard. The center, uh, Mason Cole, should be a lot better. In his second year, the other guard, the other guard, Justin Pugh, is a solid veteran. And if you look at Cliff Kingsbury's history, he had great success scheming to protect bad offensive lines at Texas Tech. He was at Texas Tech for six years. They had one offensive lineman drafted during those six years, and but they had the, the fourth lowest sack rate in college football during that time. And I think that David Johnson obviously is going to see way fewer eight-man boxes going from. Mike McCoy's like bunch formations to a four wide spread offense. And then, but the, in terms of, you know, one of the chapters that I, I most enjoyed editing because I agreed with Warren, you know, but my, my confirmation bias really kicked in. Uh, but there is the Ravens. And, you know, there's this stigma that Lamar Jackson just can't pass and will never be able to. But Lamar Jackson at Louisville got better as a passer every single year. And Warren in the book makes great points about how Lamar Jackson as a 21-year-old rookie averaged more yards per attempt than Joe Flacco did as a 23-year-old rookie. And that was despite Lamar Jackson getting almost no first-team reps until he took over the offense in, uh, during the Week 10 bye. And then the Ravens this offseason promoted Greg, off, Greg Roman's offensive coordinator. Greg Roman, one of the best run game designers in the league. He had great success working with Colin Kaepernick and Tyrod Taylor. And Warren has the Ravens facing the NFL's second easiest schedule of run defenses this year. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, so we have this, the run heaviest team in the league, uh, drawing the, one of the easiest run defense schedules in the league. Running is obviously a huge part of Omar Jackson's game. It just seems like the public is really down on him. 
Uh, but I don't think anyone should be surprised if he takes a big second-year leap. I even think he's kind of an interesting um, long-shot MVP bet at like 100-1 to 1 or 80-1. to 1. And he's a guy that I want on my teams this year uh, because people are so down on him that they let him slip to like the 14th, 15th, 16th round of drafts. Well, and the two things that those teams have in common is that unknown factor, right? We're seeing brand new situations for the most part. Like, we got a little taste of Lamar Jackson last year and what that offense could be. But like you said, that that team wasn't really designed with him as the starter in mind initially. And he was always playing catch-up for the whole season. Now, we have to project him out for a whole season with the full offseason of work prepping to become the starter. And on the Arizona side, we have a brand new coach, a brand new quarterback, a bunch of other you know changes and additions as you outlined. The rub for me is that the hype with Arizona is getting out of control. Like Kyler Murray is going yeah. in the top 10 of quarterbacks, but Lamar Jackson is still super affordable. So he's a guy I'm ending up with a lot, whereas Murray... I just I have a hard time buying into an unknown situation like that, even with all of the positive factors that you outlined. Do you have any concerns that maybe we might be overhyping that Arizona offense to some extent, at least among like the real degenerate fantasy crowd? Possibly. And look, you know, I, I understand the, the the sentiment that Kyler Murray might be being overdrafted right now. Um, so we can look to other areas of the offense, uh, and you know, David Johnson, he's still he's still a guy that. I mean, you know, we're, we're splitting hairs up at the top of, of any draft. Yep. But he's still a guy that I can pretty consistently get at number five overall. And I love getting him there, you know, right after kind of that that first tier of Kamara, Elliott, McCaffrey, and Barkley. Um, I mean, I think that David Johnson belongs in that tier. I think he belongs ahead of Melvin Gordon. And so I think, you know, relatively speaking, he is a guy that is still not a, not a bad value. And then Christian Kirk is a guy who really stands out to me this year. I mean – there has been a lot of hype on him, but his ADP has not yet risen to a point where, you know, it's like, all right, we, you know, we can't take him anymore. I mean, you can still pretty consistently get him late sixth or seventh or even sometimes eighth round on drafts or, you know, on, on in, in different forms of drafts. And uh, I think that that's maybe the way to go right now because I think that Christian Kirk is going to overtake Larry Fitzgerald as the Cardinals' number one receiver this year. You know, he was much more effective when healthy. Last year, then Larry Fitzgerald averaged 1.9 uh, yards per route run in the slot. Larry Fitzgerald was down at 1.3 yards per route run in the slot. So, I, I, and, and I think that Cliff Kingsbury is going to kind of turn the page on Larry Fitzgerald this year, and we're going to see, you know, finally um, another num- number one receiver in Arizona. Yeah, good deal. And I, I love the David Johnson call. I'm right there with you. The one thing that really stands out to me with him is that change in coach and offensive scheme because. He was so misused last year that he can't help but, you know, catch more passes, run more routes, all that stuff that's going to get him back into that, you know, top-end fantasy running back discussion, even with the offensive line concerns. I love DJ as a first-round pick, and if you can get him at 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th overall, you're potentially getting the RB1. You never know, and I I think that that's a fine value. And one of the reasons why I'm not so concerned about getting a top-3 or top-4 pick this year as I have been in past years. It seems like the that first round is really wide open. But speaking of running backs, I want to get back to the Ravens real quick and dissect who are you targeting in that backfield, if anybody? Are Do you like Mark Ingram? Are you waiting for Justice Hill? Do you have any interest in Kenneth Dixon or Gus Edwards? Because that's kind of a cloudy situation at this point. Yeah, no, no interest really in Gus Edwards or, or Kenneth Dixon, barring an injury in training camp. 
Um, Mark Ingram always goes like two rounds ahead of where I would select him. My biggest issue with Mark Ingram is, well, number one, how many touchdowns is he going to score? Lamar Jackson led the NFL in red zone rushes last year, and he only started, you know, half the half the season. And then how many passes is Mark Ingram going to catch? Right. And it's, and it's not that's not necessarily a knock on Mark Ingram's receiving ability, but they averaged about four running back targets per game after Lamar Jackson took over. He's just so much likelier to take off and run it himself than to dump down and check down. And you're already starting with a limited passing game tie because, I mean, this was an offense that averaged 23 pass attempts per game last season with Lamar Jackson at quarterback. He never even got to 30 in, in an individual game. I think the most he had was 29 in the playoff game against the Chargers, and that was only because they fell behind by two scores. So they're not going to be passing very much in the first place, in all likelihood. And then you have the fact that Lamar Jackson is not a check-down quarterback. He's more dy- – like, I'd rather have him run run the ball, you know, from a, from a, an, an expected value standpoint than dump it down to Mark Ingram. So, I mean, my projection right now for Mark Ingram is 19 catches. And, you know, what – if we end up with a lot of – just a ton of rushing attempts where our touchdown probability is, is lowered – and we're not going to get a lot of catches from this guy, then, I mean, he's he's, a, he's someone that at this point I'm going to just let other people draft. I will take Justice Hill in the 14th and 15th round. I think he's a really dynamic running back. And um, I think that, you know, by like week six or seven, he's going to be one of these guys that everybody's like, Justice Hill needs more touches. Justice Hill needs more touches. And I think he might get those touches because I think that when he enters the game, it's going to be like the running back for the Ravens. You know, they hit the turbo button on him because he's so much more explosive than Mark Ingram. Yeah, I could see that for sure. Now, a lot of the times when we start hearing those calls for more touches for this player or that player, it never comes to fruition just right. because there are so many different players that these coaches want to keep involved. Uh, I mean, we've already talked about how many other running backs are in that backfield. And I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe one of them gets cut during training camp, but that is kind of a nebulous situation. Another nebulous situation for me is the Dallas Cowboys beyond their primary playmakers. Ezekiel Elliott, he's kind of a no-brainer first rounder. Amari Cooper's wide receiver role is pretty clearly defined, at least within the context of this Cowboys team. And Dak Prescott seems like a fine value as far as quarterbacks go. You know, his production really picked up after the addition of Cooper. But that also seemed to help Michael Gallup. What do you see with these secondary options in Dallas? Michael Gallup, Randall Cobb, any of the tight ends? Did these guys move the needle for you in fantasy? Because it seems like one of these players is likely to produce in a way that is going to be effective for our fantasy teams. But to pinpoint which player that's going to be and to expect any level of consistency seems a little murky. So what do you think about the Cowboys beyond Zeke, Amari, and Dak? Yeah, so we're this is another team where we're dealing with a limited passing game pie, right? Yeah. And as you mentioned, Amari Cooper is just locked in. And Zeke Elliott is locked in. I, I love how much they, they spiked his passing game usage. That was long overdue. 77 catches, 95 targets. You know, the targets were top five among running backs. But the way that I view a guy like Michael Gallup is I want him as like part of my stable in best ball, you know, because I'm building a stable of what six to eight receivers. And I, I like him as like my wide receiver six, seven or eight. You know, well, it's, it's probably going to be more like the wide receiver or wide receiver six or seven, but I like him as part of my stable. I'm not, it's, you know, it's going to take like an injury to Amari Cooper for Michael Gallup to really become 
a truly relevant season long guy. So I'm viewing him as a, a best ball pick. You know, he's fine to own in dynasty. Jason Witten is like a tight end three. And you know, if I'm really looking for a sleeper in Dallas, um, because Zeke had another little off field thing, and it looks like he's going to, um, he's not going to face any discipline from it. Um, but he does have a history of kind of off field things and his workloads are so high that it puts him at elevated injury risk. Um, I think that Tony Pollard, the fourth round pick is interesting as a, as a dynasty, uh, hold and as a guy that you might take like in the 18th round, uh, uh, on draft. Um, he was sort of a gadget player behind Daryl Henderson at Memphis, but he caught 104 balls in three seasons. They used him in the slot. He's got feature back size at six foot. To 10, and he was exceptional with the ball in his hands at Memphis. He averaged almost seven yards per carry, over 12, 12 yards per catch. He returned seven kickoffs for touchdowns in three seasons at Memphis. He ran 4-4-2 at his pro day. Um, and I think that he is going to be ahead of Darius Jackson and Mike Weber on the depth chart. That's pretty weak competition for the number two in Dallas behind Zeke Elliott. Darius Jackson, a guy who's essentially like a practice squad journeyman guy and Mike Weber, a seventh round pick who um, already has knee problems. Tony Pollard, I think uh, pretty interesting, really deep sleeper. Yeah. And I think that's the right way to frame it, right? Cause the way you just described Pollard reminds me exactly of how we were all talking about Chase Edmonds last year. We're talking about how athletic he was, how he could just slide right in for David Johnson. If Johnson ever got hurt. And then during the season, Johnson got dinged up a little bit. Chase Edmonds, came into the game. And again, we've already dis- discussed how much of a train wreck that Cardinals offense was, but Edmonds was not very good. And so I think with Pollard, it really is about managing those expectations. Like you said, an 18th round pick or a deep dynasty stash makes sense, but let's not project him for, you know, the, those really high end handcuff sort of values that we might give to, uh, I don't know, some other running back uh, who, who we've actually seen produce before. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right, now I want to go a little bit more nebulous with you, Evan. I want to talk generally about positional value and positional reliability because I think this stuff has to inform our draft-to-draft strategy. Like, what positions do we value the highest, just in general? At a base level, how do you prioritize quarterback versus running back versus wide receiver and tight end, at least in terms of their importance to your fantasy roster? Like, which position do you believe is the most important to get right in your drafts and in season? And which ones do you think matter a little bit less? And I'm not saying that none of them don't matter. I'm not going to come out here and go full Josh Hermsmeyer and say that running backs don't matter. But <laughs> we, we have to kind of contextualize this stuff and rank the positions relative to one another, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, mean, I think that obviously everything comes down to your league-specific scoring. You know, if you're playing in FFPC – where tight ends get 1.5 points per reception, you're bumping tight up, tight ends up your cheat sheet in two quarterback leagues, you're bumping quarterbacks way up. Those are obvious. For this year in particular, if we're just discussing running backs and, and wide receivers in a PPR league, one of my favorite early round starts is to begin with a big time back earlier in the middle of the first round, you know, those, those five or six running backs that we discussed earlier, and come back and just start hammering wide receivers and maybe mix in a big time tight end. And then at the back end of the first round, one of my favorite approaches is to start with two big-time wide receivers. Like I did this uh, recent um, high-stakes draft with uh, Noah Rudell. We started Devontae Adams late in the first, and we came back with Juju early in the second. And then we just ripped off a ton of running backs 
all in a row. Uh, Leonard Fournette in the third, Aaron Jones in the fourth, Chris Carson in the fifth. We kind of cuffed him with Rashad Penny in the sixth, and then Miles Sanders in the seventh. So we came out of those first seven rounds feeling great about our wide receivers and our running back situations. Got Russell Wilson in the 14th round, and we're kind of rolling the dice that Jordan Reed, Greg Olson, and Jason Witten can kind of just keep us afloat at tight end. But yeah, I mean, I think it, you know, one of the, I think maybe the single biggest edge that anyone can have really at any level, it doesn't matter if you're playing in your home league, you know, with a $10 buy-in or you're playing with the $1,800 buy-in in the FFPC, the biggest edge that we can have over our opponents is to understand the scoring in our league. And I know that that it just sounds so rudimentary, but I really think it's, it's maybe the single biggest advantage that we can have on our opponents who aren't taking the time to go through, read the rules and assess, you know, hey, should I move quarterbacks up in this particular league? Should I move tight ends up in this particular league? And so, yeah, that, that's kind of way that I approach the positions on a position-by-position position basis. Yeah, for sure. I, I agree the quarterback and tight end is very much format-dependent. Those two positions really depend on how many of those positions you start and what the scoring settings for those positions are, because they will vary more from league to league than the running back and wide receiver positions, where scoring tends to be pretty standard. You know, there's some variation in the value of a reception, things like that, but you usually start about the same number of them, you know, two to three running backs, two to three wide receivers. And so that's the big crux that you have to figure out is, are you a wide receiver early guy? Are you a running back early guy or gal, I should say? And how do you apply that once it is time to draft? Because I, I love that modified zero RB approach that you talked about, where if you have that early pick in the first round, you lock up a bell cow because those are the scarcest commodities we have in these drafts. Like there's, there's no way around that. These guys that get a ton of touches and a ton of catches out of the backfield are rare. Teams just don't really operate that way very often. When we do see that happen is when the running backs are supremely, supremely talented. And so you have to lock up those guys if you have the opportunity to, but once you get into that back half of the second round, that's where, you know, that commodity is dried up. And so you have to turn to the next most important position, which is wide receiver. Mm -hmm. And especially if you're in PPR, you got to go after those big, you almost want to call them bell cow receivers, right? Those guys with locked in target volume and touchdown upside. And so I, I love that you laid it out that way. Now, another kind of factor that has to go into these position you know, rankings that we have, uh, these general position rankings, are the reliability and kind of the predictability of each position, right? Some positions are a little bit more injury prone based upon the types of touches that they get. You know, running backs, tight ends generally are going to get injured a lot more often than quarterbacks and wide receivers. The game, the rules of the NFL are designed to keep quarterbacks and wide receivers a little healthier than those other positions. Mm -hmm. And so, I guess when it comes to the reliability or the predictability of these positions, how do you factor that into your calculus of positional priority? So quarterback is easily the most reliable position year over year. I mean, there are obviously going to be exceptions. You know, Peyton Manning falls off the cliff, you know, et cetera. But generally, we know which guys are good bets to be the quarterback ones. And now with more quarterbacks adding rushing value, the pool of the usable quarterbacks has also grown considerably and you mentioned the injury factor running back is just so volatile volatile because of their injury risk we know who the top backs are in terms of projections before the season but the top backs are involved in 300 car crashes every year and then all the committee backfields create unreliability and those guys are middle and later round picks as they should be Uh, but overall in terms of reliability and predictability quarterback is in, in a tier unto its own 
and then wide receiver second, running back third, and, and tight end fourth. Tight end, of course, another position where guys are running into car crashes in the middle of the field. They're up on the line, chipping and blocking and getting hit constantly. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I love the way you framed quarterbacks in terms of usability, right? And that's what makes them predictable. It's not necessarily that week to week we always gonna we're always gonna know which quarterbacks are gonna finish in the top ten for that given week, but we know that quarterbacks on the whole can almost always be counted on to score points, to score some amount of points that's generally going to be more than what your average running back or your average wide receiver replacement level guys are going to give you. The replacement level quarterbacks are still going to get you, say, 12 to 18 points per game for the most part. Mm -hmm. And that has to factor into how we value those positions. And that's why late round quarterback drafting has become so prevalent and quarterback streaming has become so prevalent. In a two-quarterback league, that changes a little bit, but it's still important to remember that the position is deep and there are a lot of usable guys, so you still have to prioritize those other positions, in my opinion. Now, kind of to tie all this together, how do these questions that we've just answered shape our draft strategies, right? Like, do we get pushed more towards structural draft plans like 0RB, or should we be more trying to pick the right player in any given round of a draft because we know that you know, there are high-end quarterbacks, there are high-end wide receivers, there are high-end running backs. And the big question is, do you try to piece together, you know, an advantage at every position? Or would you rather focus on a couple key positions and essentially punt one of the other ones, whether it be tight end or quarterback, or maybe even running back if you're going zero RB? Yeah, I mean, I tend to not go into any draft with a structured plan. But as the draft progresses, I'm very willing to use a zero RB strategy if a specific draft dictates that I should, like AJ Green sometimes makes it into the fourth round. Yeah. And I don't care if I took three wide receivers to start the draft. I'm taking AJ Green in the fourth round. Uh, so I will def- absolutely start like wide receiver times four. And I look, and you know, on the flip side, I'll go robust running back two. If that's how the draft falls, I know that there's kind of a stigma against, Oh, you know, we can't, you know, we, we shouldn't just use the strategy of, of draft the best player. And I do agree with that. But I mean, also at the end of the day, we, we have rankings and, and tiers and projections for a reason. And, and we're hoping that our, our rankings and our tiers and our projections are superior to our opponents. That's not necessarily, you know, a lot of different things are going to happen throughout the course of the year. Waiver pickups or, you know, especially in best ball on draft.com, injuries are such a big part of the game. You really need good injury fortune. Uh, but this is one of the reasons that I like to do a lot of drafts and to draft for volume because being flexible sets you up to play around with a bunch of different strategies. I think the one strategy that I do ascribe to is using a tiering system where I'm not necessarily like just going down a draft board thinking that, hey, my draft board is better than yours, but I can group players into tiers and you're paying attention to which larger player groupings are dwindling fastest as the draft moves forward. You know, So I like scooping up players who are the last or second to last guys in a positional tier, especially when you start to move into those eight, nine, tenth rounds, you know, I feel, I feel a lot more confident about my draft um, when, when my tiers are kind of clicking during the draft. Yeah, for sure. And I've actually seen some studies done on this idea that tiers actually aren't helpful. That it's because it's too hard to predict what an actual tier will be. But I don't think that that makes the exercise not worth it because what tiering the players like that really does for you is it gives you a mental shortcut when you're in the draft to make a faster decision, to make an educated decision and pick a player who you might like more. And you might end up with a guy in a tier who you actually don't want to draft, but you have to assume, okay, I think this guy is 
ultimately going to be of a similar value to someone else. Like you mentioned AJ Green. Like if you believe that AJ Green is on the level of someone, I don't know, like Michael Thomas, or at least close enough to Michael Thomas, I, I actually think that there's probably a little bit of a gap between those guys, but you know, that ceiling for AJ Green is within his range of outcomes. Then you can consider passing on Michael Thomas, I guess, in you know the early second and hope that you get A.J. Green in the late third. Like you said, sometimes Green is sliding into the fourth round, and that's just that's crazy to me too. But mm-hmm. those, those tiering systems, what they allow you to do is kind of see the pockets of value and see where positions are going to get dried up relative to ADP and have that help inform your draft strategy for a given section of the ra- of the draft, whether it be the first couple rounds, the middle rounds, the late rounds, and so on. So I think even though tiers might not be you know, perfect, they are helpful for sure. Whether we have a plan for how we want to start our draft, uh, you know, zero RB, robust RB, whatever, I, I want to hear, Evan, how your strategic preferences apply to real-life drafting scenarios. So You've mentioned draft a couple times. They're the sponsor of this show. And I want to hunt for some draft day targets in certain ADP ranges uh, from draft. And listeners, you should check out the best ball contests on draft if you haven't already. These are season-long leagues, but there's no in-season management required. All you have to do is draft your team, and that's it. No salary caps. These are live snake drafts, just like the season-long leagues you play with your friends. You don't even have to set lineups. Your best players are automatically selected each week of the season, so you always get your highest possible scores. And draft is awesome because you can join a league anytime you want. Evan talked about drafting for volume, and playdraft.com is the perfect place to do that. These best ball drafts fire off every couple minutes, so you can sign up and start drafting right away. Even though the format is a little different than a traditional league, these best ball drafts are also a great preparation tool for your standard season-long leagues. They're like way better than most mock drafts you'll do because these leagues are for actual cash, you know, cold, hard cash. And that weeds out the type of knuckleheads who are going to join a mock just to pick Blake Bortles in the first round and log out. Drafts best balls start at only $3, so there's a league for everyone. If you're signing up as a new player, you can use our promo code to get free entry into one of those $3 best ball drafts when you make your first deposit. That promo code is 4 for 4 and it's spelled just like the web address of the site. The number 4, then F-O-R, then the number 4 again. Just search Draft in the App Store or go to PlayDraft.com and play in a real money game for free using our code 4 for 4. Again, that's the number 4, F-O-R, then the number 4. So with Evan here on the show, I want to look at that ADP from Draft and try to find some mid-round values based on a couple different early round draft scenarios. So if we're going wide receiver heavy in the first few rounds, like we've discussed to some extent on the show already, Evan, which running backs are you most intrigued by in those middle rounds? Say like rounds five to eight. Who are you looking at there? Rounds five through eight. So I'm definitely on the Daryl Henderson train problem. So is everyone else now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're talking about a guy who should have a defined eight to 12 touches per game. And then he has just an immense ceiling, like league winning ceiling. If Todd Gurley has any kind of setback, but I, I, like I'm still willing to take him in, in the fifth round, maybe even late in the fourth. Uh, I, I think that people are way too low on Chris Carson, who I consistently get in the fifth round, um, and it have even gotten him a couple times in the sixth. I think that people are too concerned about Rashad Penny. Uh, the Seahawks are going to run the ball so often that Chris Carson is going to be rock solid, even if uh, Penny is more of a factor, and you're pulling Mike Davis out of the backfield. So we're kind of turning a three-man backfield into a two-man backfield, and that's really benef- that's going to be beneficial to both guys. That's assuming that you know J.D. McKissick or Travis Homer doesn't step up and 
you know, take the, the Mike Davis role. But Mike Davis was like a pretty significant factor last year. He had 34 catches. Uh, he had some, he had, uh, some, some weeks where he was effective on the ground. But I, I think that Chris Carson is still a guy that we need to be hammering home in the fifth and sixth rounds. Royce Freeman looks like he's going to be a bigger factor this year. Uh, in Denver, uh, Philip Lindsay is 184 pounds, you know, and he was a great story as a rookie. He's, uh, he missed the entire offseason. They changed coaching staffs. They're going to be a team that wants to run the ball and play good defense under Vic Fangio, and they're going to play good defense under Vic Fangio. I think they're going to struggle offensively, mostly, um, but I still think that Royce Freeman is a guy that can give us 13 to 16 touches per game uh, this year because they're going to run the ball a lot. Uh, they also got Mike Munchak as their offensive line coach, and he's one of the best in the league. Uh, and then Latavius Murray, I think, is still super underrated. Realistic candidate for double-digit touchdowns in New Orleans. If we just take Mark Ingram's touches per game last year, that gives 13.5 per game to Latavius Murray. He's always been a guy that coaching staffs have liked to give the ball to on the goal line. He has 53 carries inside the 10-yard line over the past three seasons. Um, and I think that they're going to try to, you know, they're not going to pour everything onto Alvin Kamara's plate uh, because they want to keep him healthy over the course of the year. Yeah, for sure. Now, you mentioned Carson and his workload split with Rashad Penny. What about Penny? Because he's going in a similar range, a little bit later than Carson, admittedly. But is Penny a guy that you're willing to draft a little bit later? Yeah, definitely. We we went a little early on him uh, in that FF, FFPC draft that I mentioned with uh, with Noah because I'm a Carson guy and Penny and, and Noah is a Penny guy. And so, you know, just working as a team, we were like, you know, all right, let's do it. You know, let's we'll, we'll, we'll just take both guys. We're taking them both. You know, if something happens to Carson, like Rashad Penny could be a league winner. And I think that they can both be usable on a week to week basis. You know, one guy could be your RB2 and one guy could be your flex. They're going to just run. There's going to be so much rushing volume in Seattle again. So I'm not, I'm really not particularly high on Rashad Penny, but I'm also not, you know, against him. I just wish that he was going a little bit later than he is. Another pair of teammates going in this range are the Bears, Tariq Cohen and David Montgomery. Are you touching either one of those guys at cost? Because that's another kind of cloudy situation where there are just a lot of weapons in the Bears offense, and that makes me worried about drafting basically all of them. Yeah, and it's not crazy to think that Mike Davis could be a factor there too. I mean, yeah. you know, even if it's he's pulling away five to seven touches a game from the other guys, that's going to hurt. You know, I, I kind of like the situation for David Montgomery. The Bears were very aggressive about drafting up to get him. They obviously really like him. Um, they bring back uh, all five offensive line starters. You know, they're going to be good on defense again. They'll probably regress some, but they're still going to be good on defense. They're going to be in positive, you know, run-friendly fr- scripts. I just, these guys go tend to go earlier than where I, I would consider them. Another crowded offense in general is the Eagles, and Miles Sanders is – being drafted in this range as well. Are you taking any chances on him? Yes, and especially as his ADP uh, started to drop because of the hamstring injury at Mitch Camp. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, start to get him in like seventh, eighth round, absolutely. You talk about the Eagles' depth, man. They, they like have two offenses. Uh-huh. I mean, th- their offense is so deep that it, it really instills some trepidation like about a guy like Zach Ertz. You know, Zach Ertz had – 44 more targets than he had ever had in his career last season. He had 38 more catches than he had ever had in, in a season in his career. And, 
you know, with all these weapons, um, he's a guy that I've started to really fade. Yeah, no, me too. I've been off of Ertz basically all off season. I, I would draft Kittle ahead of him if oh. given the choice, like no doubt about it. And anyway, yeah, I, I agree with you. Like I think Goddard's got to get more touches. They brought in Deshaun Jackson, drafted our Sega white side. The ball's not going to be able to get to everyone as often as it did last season. And we have to account for that. Uh, a couple more running backs I want to throw out at you. Some, you know, post-hype and maybe injury bounce back guys we can look at. Tevin Coleman, Darius Geis, Ronald Jones. Do you have any interest in those three guys? Uh, no, man. You know, this is funny. <laughs> I was uh, I was just uh, hanging out with Pat Thorman and Rich Rebar at, at Pat Thorman's house in Massachusetts. And we were talking about all these guys. And we were talking about Darius Geis in particular. Reeves is just like, you know, DND. You know, he's just like, there's a list of guys that he's just not going to take. And Darius Geis was among them, and I, I completely agreed with that. Tevin Coleman, I'll take a shot on because his ADP is not out of control. You know, people are still concerned about Jarek McKinnon and Matt Breida, and for good reason. I actually love drafting Matt Breida when he gets to the right spot. But Tevin Coleman's a guy I'll take a shot on in the, in the sixth or the seventh round. Ronald Jones, like, I, I guess this might be my own personal bias because I really didn't like him coming out of college, and then he was just the worst of the worst as a rookie. So am I all of a sudden going to pivot and, you know, now, now be on him just because, you know, I'm pivoting? Like, no, I, I'm, I'm probably going to just continue to stay away from him. He's going ahead of Peyton Barber, which kind of really makes no sense aside from the draft capital, I guess. But, man, you're banking on Jason Light's draft investment. You, you want to go back and look at Jason Light's draft history? I mean, he's taking Robert Roberto Aguayo in the second round. So maybe we should adjust the draft capital bump for Ronald Jones, <laughs> considering that Jason Light is the guy who drafted him. Hey, you think you think that's bad? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to me, he feels like the running back version of Devontae Parker, where he's yeah. getting all this mini camp buzz, and yeah. we just haven't seen him do it yet. You know, it's like show me first with Ronald Jones. I, I'm out on him as well, guys. I just. I have too many concerns about him coming back from that injury and, you know, the state of that offense with Dwayne Haskins as the likely starter and and with Trent Williams holding out. Like, I, I just, I'm worried about that whole offense and Darius Geis kind of suffers for that reason. Yeah, okay, so I, I think in general those three players are, are ones we can't avoid. Now, the last guy I want to throw at you is another boring vet kind of along the lines of Latavius Murray, but we're seeing this guy go ahead of Murray in most cases, and that's Lamar Miller. What do you expect from that backfield in Houston? Because they're another team with a spotty offensive line. Deshaun mm -hmm. Watson is going to vulture some carries on his own. What are you doing with Lamar Miller? I mean, he's just, you know, so not fun. <laughs> it's like, it's funny, you know, Lamar Miller has always been one of Pat Thorman's like, truther players. Um, and Eric Ebron was, has always been too. And finally, Eric Ebron hit last year. Um, if you just look at Lamar Miller's, like, his, like, raw yards per carry last year, it looks pretty good. He was one of the least successful backs in the league, though. The offensive line, as you mentioned, is a problem. He really hasn't been able to capitalize on the dual threat that Deshaun Watson provides yet. We, and it's still a pretty small sample. What is it, 16, about 21 starts of Deshaun Watson. But, um, you know, he did have some 100-yard games the, last year. The, uh, the, the year previous, he didn't have any 100-yard games. I don't know. You can tell yourself a story. He's he's one of those 
guys that I will take as like my RB4 on draft, but I'm not excited to do it. And usually he's, he ends up as someone's RB3 anyway, so he's kind of out of my range. But, you know, he's just a guy, man. I think he's just a guy. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm always – I have drafted him a couple times, and I always feel dirty after doing it. Like, I, he's just not an exciting player, like you said. Now, we talked about the running backs we can draft in this range if we went wide receiver heavy in the early rounds. Let's flip the script. What if you go RB heavy in the first few rounds – Let's look at the wide receivers that are going in rounds five to eight. And before you give me the guys who you definitely like, I want to talk about Cooper Cup because to me, this just seems like a colossal injury optimism trap waiting to happen. Like he got injured late in the season last year and he's being drafted ahead of a lot of, you know, really viable and intriguing wide receiver targets. I I want nothing to do with Cup at his price. Are you looking at him at all this year? Yeah, so I haven't really come up with a super hard stance on Cooper Cup yet, but I can tell you that he's never like in my range when I'm about to draft. You know, he's never, he's long gone. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, the guys that I'm really looking for in that rounds five to eight range, Allen Robinson. See, to me, Allen Robinson was an easy fade last year. I thought as a guy coming off a torn ACL who didn't even play the season before and he was changing teams, which we talked about as a can be a major red flag for wide receivers. But, man, I love buying back on him this year. When Mitchell Trubisky and Allen Robinson were healthy in the playoffs against the Eagles, we saw what Allen Robinson could do at 100%. It was really one of the best wide receiver performances of the year. And I think that, you know, in this offense, in the second year with the the same coach, in the second year with, uh, you know, the the quarterback whose trajectory is still up. I know a lot of people are down on Mitchell Trubisky, and I, I totally understand that. But his trajectory has gone up. So, you know, I, I love them as like a best ball pairing, like as a stack, because they are very affordable. You, you can usually get Allen Robinson like fifth, sixth round, and then um, Mitchell Trubisky real, real late. Uh, so I like those guys as, as a stack. I mentioned Christian Kirk, uh, and I, I always have a soft spot for Robbie Anderson. He's been a moneymaker for me in DFS, and I'm willing to live with his ups and downs at his cost. Uh, which is is fairly high on on draft, but you know I'm willing to take him because he's going to give me spiked weeks. I know that, and he has that established rapport with Sam Darnold, and I'm a big reliever, uh, believer in quarterback wide receiver relationships on the field. Another player who's kind of similar to Allen Robinson in that like old guard of wide receiver one archetypes is Alshon Jeffrey, and he's going in this range too. We've talked about the Eagles offense a little bit already, but with Jeffrey specifically, are you interested in fantasy drafts? I, I, I feel like the same sort of upside is there for him as is there with Robinson, but I kind of like cup, just have a hard time pulling the trigger on Alshon Jeffrey in this range. Yeah. Early on, on draft, I was drafting him a bunch and then I had to kind of like reassess, you know, this is kind of one of the, the benefits I think from doing volume drafting because when I, when I draft like 19 drafts and he's on like 12 of them, I'm like, you know, am I missing something? And so I went back and I reevaluated a little bit. Um, and just the, the depth of the pass catcher core scares me. You know, JJ Arcega Whiteside is like, you know, the, he, I think he's like the replacement and he's already on the roster. And that's a Scary. little bit concerning. Yeah. That's, that's, it's, it's majorly concerning. So I really haven't been taking Alshon Jeffrey at all recently. And um, until his, you know, his, his ADP starts to get like six, like seventh round, seventh, eighth round, 
I'm probably going to stay away from them. Now, kind of pivoting off of the Christian Kirk call that you had, how about some of the other second-year wide receivers? Calvin Ridley, DJ Moore, Dante Pettis, Cortland Sutton. It's pretty easy to fade Sutton considering his quarterback situation, but those other three guys, Ridley, Moore, and Pettis, all seem to have the arrow pointing up in year two. So what are you doing with those guys? I, I feel like all of them are definitely draftable, but because this group is so clustered and there are so many guys that are seemingly close in value, I have a hard time, you know, having a preference for one or the other. And usually I'll just wait and draft whichever one kind of falls to the next round. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. And DJ Moore, I think tends to go first among these four guys. And I mean, I get it, you know, it, unfortunately it goes a little bit early for my tastes and I've just been hammering Curtis Samuel, uh, like five or six rounds later. Uh, but I think that DJ Moore also has the best chance of these guys to be a consistent producer in, yeah. um, in like, in like as a season long redraft start, you know, a guy that you, you might put in your lineup every week, whereas the other guys, you're kind of like, ah, you're deciding between them, you know, um, Calvin Ridley, I think is going to experience some touchdown regression. I mean, 10 touchdowns on what 64 catches. That's a lot. That's going to be hard to do. If he drops to four, you know, if he drops from 10 to four, you're kind of screwed. Dante Pettis is a, is a guy that I've been getting a lot of because I think that his price is still pretty reasonable. Although, you know, I don't think it's crazy to kind of pivot to D, to Debo Samuel seven rounds after Dante Pettis and was actually, you know, obviously in different drafts, but Debo Samuel was drafted higher, you know, in their respective drafts than Dante Pettis was. And I think that it's not crazy to think that Debo Samuel could approach or even top Dante Pettis in targets. We have 27 catches on the resume of Dante Pettis. So while I really like what I saw from him as a rookie, you know, I'm not willing to you know, lock him into the number one wide receiver role in San Francisco. Um, I mean, he didn't, he wasn't even a factor when Jimmy Garoppolo was in there. He was a factor when um, Nick Mullins and CJ Beathard were in there. So it's not like he even has an established rapport with the quarterback. Cortland Sutton, I think his price is pretty good right now. I think he's going to have some spiked weeks. I think he's not going to be consistent, you know, on a run heavy team with Joe Flacco at quarterback, but I do think he's going to, he's got a chance to have some spiked weeks. He had a lot of air yards last year and um, that's been a pretty predictive metric and he's in no danger of like losing, you know, his job or anything like that. I think he's got really strong job security and that's something that you factor in when you're drafting in a best ball league. You want your guy to be out there. Right. And that's a lot of the reason why we like DJ Moore too, right? Because he has that pretty locked in target share. At least we can assume he does. Whereas with a player like Pettis, as you mentioned, we haven't really seen him do it with Jimmy Garoppolo. I think the preseason is going to be really instructive for those 49ers wide receivers, seeing who Garoppolo is targeting and who who just, you know, starts with the first team offense when they have those more meaningful preseason games. Let's talk about a couple wide receivers who are presumed to be vacuuming up some vacated targets, Sammy Watkins and Tyler Lockett. I think both of these guys have the opportunity to really grow into bigger roles this year, but is it really fair to put those expectations on them? Because Watkins is still kind of the second option behind Travis Kelsey, and Lockett has never really had to be the wide receiver one before, and he's also a guy who's probably doomed for some amount of regression. He was just so efficient last year. What are you doing with Watkins and Lockett? Yeah, see, Lockett is definitely doomed for regression. I mean, no one should expect him to score a touchdown every seventh target. But he also should be able to get up into the 100 target range. And I like his move into the slot. He destroyed on slot routes 
last year. I mean, just all of his efficiency and usage metrics were up when he played in the slot last year. And Doug Baldwin leaving, you know, creates a ton of opportunity for the rest of the guys. I don't think that DK Metcalf is ever going to be a high volume, like target commander. Um, you know, I, I envision him as like a Martavis Bryant. He's going to give you some, some splash plays, but I mean, he's, you know, he doesn't really know how to run routes yet. I don't know if he ever is going to be able to run a, a lot of routes just because he's not an agile guy, but I think he's going to be a useful guy on the field and he's going to give you some big plays and actually like taking him in best ball. But Tyler Lockett is going to be the focal point of this passing offense. You have a, a bunch of guys at, at tight end. I know that Will Disley had a, had some moments early last year, but he's coming off a ruptured patellar tendon. And then, you know, the third receiver job is completely up for grabs. You got fourth round pick Gary Jennings. You know, they talked about the seventh round pick John Ursua. It's clear that Tyler Lockett is going to lead this team in targets, and he's he's really good. And I know that there is some sentiment against him in the in the, the fantasy football community, but I'm willing to I'm willing to, to to bet on Tyler Lockett. You know, he was one of my highest owned guys uh, on draft last year, and you know I, I believed in him. It's just could he stay healthy? He finally stayed healthy. We saw what he could do. He was a he was one of the most dynamic receivers in the league last year. Sammy Watkins hasn't been good in a long time. And he hasn't stayed healthy in a long time. And I guess it looks more and more like Tyree Kill's suspension is maybe only going to be four games. And, uh, you know, I, and Sammy Watkins just goes too early for my taste at, at this point. I'm not sure even really what he has left in the tank. He did have some good games last year, but he was super up and down. And I just don't think he can stay healthy at this stage of his career. I, I'm actually still fine with drafting both of them because the Tyree Kill situation is still so unknown like we're getting these inklings of what might happen mm -hmm. but we don't know for sure right. and you know if, if the targets are there for Watkins even if he isn't quite that player we wanted him to be coming out of college he still could have the opportunity and those are good targets he's going to be seeing from Patrick Mahomes just like the targets that Tyler Lockett is going to see from Russell Wilson are good targets and that's why I'm still willing to draft both of those guys I think that that stuff matters I love that you mentioned Tyler Lockett's move to the slot now a couple other slot-centric guys, you know, low A-dot, PPR-centric players. Jarvis Landry, Sterling Shepard. Shepard's getting a little bit of buzz recently uh, as kind of standing out in camp, and Landry is kind of going the other way just based upon the addition of Odell Beckham Jr. What are you doing with these two guys? I mean, in PPR formats, I think they're both pretty fine targets, but if you're in maybe a half-point PPR, uh, are those players ones you're willing to draft? Um, I think that Landry actually has gotten to a point where I have started to consider him because I think that people get it that, you know, he's not going to be the focal point any longer. He really wasn't the focal point after Freddie Kitchens took over the offense last year. You know, it was a very spread the wealth offense. His targets went way, way down. Um, but he's still a good player. And, you know, there are going to be moments, you know, during the season and we're talking best ball primarily. But there are going to be moments during the season where, where Odell Beckham's presence just helps Jarvis Landry. He's going to have big games, yeah. and that's when he's going to help you. So, yeah, actually, Jarvis Landry, as tough as it is to say, I mean, I haven't drafted him in, in, in years, really. But now he's, yeah, kind of kind of come onto my radar. The Giants' passing game is uh, it's dicey because I think that we're going to see Daniel Jones play sooner rather than later. Daniel Jones kind of a scrambling quarterback. You know, he averaged 37 rushing yards per start at Duke. You know, I think he's going to I think he's going to be scrambling a, a lot once he gets in there and all these all these pass catchers that have kind of operate in the, the in the same sectors of the field. Golden Tate, slot receiver, Sterling Shepard, 
career slot receiver is probably going to be just like their their Z receiver, Evan Ingram in the middle of the field, and um, Saquon Barkley. I, I'm just not sure how that's all going to shake out. I I will take Sterling Shepard, you know, in the double digit rounds, but not excited not excited about him. Yeah, and then PPR is going higher than that just because of the presumed target volume. I I agree that he's kind of a guy to avoid, mostly just because of what that offense appears to be. You know, the Saquon Barkley show and then not a whole lot else going on in the passing game. A couple more questions for you before we sign off here, Evan. And you can take this any direction you like, but who's a player that you're interested to draft? A guy who you find yourself trying to target, but you seem to just keep missing on in your drafts. Like, I'll I'll give you an example. For me, it's O.J. Howard. Like, I really want to get O.J. Howard on my teams, but he tends to go just a little bit before I'm willing to draft him in any given draft. What are, what's a player like that for you? OJ Howard. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I keep missing him and I, and I bumped him up my rankings, you know, and I put him at the top of the third tight end tier. I have Travis Kelsey in his own tier. And then I have George Kittle and Zach Ertz in their own tier. And then OJ Howard at the top of the third tier that also includes Hunter Henry and Evan Ingram. You know, the Bucks are, con- are going to contend for the league lead in pass attempts. Their target distribution has been narrowed considerably. You pull Adam Humphreys and Deshaun Jackson out of the offense, you don't have a clear third receiver, and your running backs don't catch passes. So it's going to be the Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, O.J. Howard show. And I'm just like, like, he will always go a pick or three ahead of me. And it's really, really frustrating um, because I, I really I would much rather have him than um, – than Hunter Henry or Evan Ingram at this point, but he's just always a little bit out of reach. And, you know, I just need to keep doing more drafts, you know, and, and try to and try to get him on, on more teams. Yeah, I, I swear we didn't plan this, but for me, I think the reason why I'm not ending up with him is because maybe when I need to take him, I look at, you know, what other tight ends are available. And I think that he's pretty easily the consensus tight end four among sharp drafters at this point, like you laid out. And as much as I like Howard, I also like the outlook for Hunter Henry and Evan Ingram is another guy who we can expect to see enough volume. I'm always willing to take those guys too. So I'll always pass on Howard and think, okay, well maybe if Howard slides to the next round and of course Howard gets picked and then I end up taking Hunter Henry, that's usually what happens. Um, So I don't think I'm necessarily going to be more aggressive in targeting Howard because I just don't think tight end is all that important compared to other positions. Like getting back to our earlier, earlier discussion of, kind of prioritizing the the different spots on the roster. So I, I don't think Howard's a guy I'm going to make an effort to get more of unless he starts to slide a little bit. I just don't think that's going to happen. It sounds like you are willing to maybe throw some higher draft capital at him as the, the offseason plays out here, though. Is that right? Maybe. I mean, I like to take two tight ends on draft. I really would prefer to take two as opposed to getting, like, you know, three later ones. I, I would rather poo poo platter. Yeah. I'd rather because then I can save a roster spot and use it, you know, on a running back or, or a wide receiver. But yeah, he's, you know, I my my optimal two tight ends are OJ Howard and Vance McDonald. But you know, it's it's kind of expensive to get him, so I usually just end up getting Vance McDonald and, and some and you know, I don't know, maybe a Hunter Henry um, earlier or, um, or or someone a little bit later. But yeah, I I, I want like I'm willing to, to go a little bit earlier on tight ends, on draft, just so I don't have to draft three. Yeah, that makes sense. In best ball, I think there is incentive to pay up a little bit more at tight end for that reason. And it's something I struggle with too, because I, I play, because I've played mostly season long for most of my fantasy career. And I I do believe that tight end kind of doesn't matter that much. So like, I'll, I'll figure that in season. I'm willing to stream the position, but you don't really have that luxury in best ball. So it's something I need to kind of 
pay more attention to as I try to get better in those formats for sure. All right, last thing before we go, Evan, give me a couple later round guys at running back and wide receiver that you're drafting, guys that you're you know really optimistic about mm-hmm. from those deep parts of the draft. So D.D. Westbrook, um, you know, he's one of these smaller receivers like T.Y. Hilton who has shown elite ability with the ball in his hands. He averaged 14 yards per punt return last season. He was a good return guy at Oklahoma. Nick Foles is going to be a big upgrade on Blake Bortles. And when you look at Nick Foles' history, he is heavily targeted slot receivers. Westbrook gained 90% of his yards in the slot last year in Philadelphia. Nelson Aguilar was Foles' second most targeted pass catcher. And in 11 starts with the Rams in 2015, Nick Foles' most targeted player was Tavon Austin. And this year, the Jaguars are missing the third most targets in the league from last year's team. So I really like taking D.D. Westbrook around that that 10th to 11th round range. At running back is like my RB5, or sometimes even RB4. I like Alexander Madison. And this was not a guy that I loved coming out of college, but we know that the biggest driver of fantasy success at the running back position is opportunity. They took him in the third round. He's a big bat, 221 pounds. I think he's going to slide right into the Latavius Murray role, possibly even Vulture at the goal line. The Vikings are all in on becoming a run-first offense. They fired John DiFilippo, who was actually one of the pass-heaviest offensive coordinators in the league last year, on first down. Um, and that's really the telltale sign of a pass-heavy coordinator is, you know, what are they doing on first down? John DiFilippo was calling pass plays at one of the highest rates in the NFL. Uh, Sharp talks about this in his book um, on first down. Um, they fired him. They hired Derry, Gary Kubiak. They used their first round pick on a center. And then they take this power back grinder in the third round. Dalvin Cook has missed 17 of 32 games so far in his career. The Vikings defense should keep them in run friendly game scripts. So I think that Madison has a potential floor of eight to 12 touches per game with underrated touchdown upside and could become an RB2 or even RB1 if Dalvin Cook gets hurt again. So he's been a guy that I'm, I've been really been getting him in, in almost every draft, whether it be season long or, or, um, or best ball or, or what have you. Yeah, speaking of seeking you know potential opportunity, one of the teams that I've been trying to hammer on that front are the Patriots. And so these guys are going a little bit earlier than Madison and D.D. Westbrook, but I keep finding myself drafting Damian Harris and Josh Gordon because – I just look at that team beyond Julian Edelman, and I don't really know where the work is going to go. So I, I just I want a piece of that offense, even if it is becoming more run heavy. And so I'm willing to take Damian Harris, you know, where he's going. We know that Sony Michelle is not super healthy, and you know there are a lot of questions about Josh Gordon and when he's going to be able to get back on the field. But the Patriots seem to be treating him like he's going to be out there at some point this season. So I'm willing to gamble on him at cost too. What are you doing with that Patriots? offense. I, I'm curious if you have any strong opinions about any of the guys there besides Edelman. Oh yeah, I think that Josh Gordon might be my highest owned player right now. Oh, that makes me feel good to hear you say that. Yes, yes. And look, he, he may like get hit with a, a, another suspension, you know, but I mean, if I could get 12 games out of him, he was really good last year. I don't think people like give him enough credit for how good he was just as a football player. He was a stud blocker. He was a stud after the catch. He finished top 25 in the NFL in receiving yards per game. And he was a difference maker when he was on the field. And now he's kind of got that established rapport with Tom Brady. And, you know, Tom Brady has talked about taking him under his wing, has talked about how, how great his football IQ is. You know, they're kind of kind of treating him like they once did Randy Moss. And he's not going to have, you know, Randy Moss 2007. But 
I mean, at his price, like every single team. I mean, I'm just 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 smashing the button on Josh Gordon. Well, speaking of football IQ, Evan Silva's got one of the highest ones in the business. I, I really wish you a lot of good luck with EstablishTheRun.com, Evan, uh, to you and your whole team over there. I really want to thank you for coming on the show today. Um, why don't you let people know uh, where they can find you on social media and all that good stuff? Yeah, just uh, at Evan Silva and check out our uh, – jump on our, our Twitter account, at EstablishTheRun. That's going to end up uh, being a great source for updates. And just EstablishTheRun.com. Uh, really excited about this this project, and I hope that other people are too. Yeah, I'm definitely excited about it. Can't wait to see what you guys do. Thanks again, Evan. Thank you, Greg. Listeners, you can follow me on Twitter at Greg Sauce. Don't forget to sign up for some best ball leagues on draft. And if you're a first timer, use our promo code 4 for 4 when you make your initial deposit to get into a $3 league for free. And be sure to head over to 4for4.com and get a subscription to see all the great work our crew is doing over there. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Most Accurate Podcast.